Joining us now, Diana Klein, owner and chef, Diana's Cucina and Lounge on St. Anne's. Diana, good morning. Good morning, Hal. Eight-time Canadian pizza baking champion. Uh, La Pizza Week wraps up on Sunday. I want to talk to you about your entry in La Pizza Week. But what was the year? And I, this is when you first started getting attention. You used, help me out, tell me if I've got my memory right here and tell me the year. You used Moosehead beer in pizza dough and everyone went, what? And you got a lot of attention for that. What year was that? That was in uh, 2005. Wow, that's I'm fantastic! <laughs> and 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 now over the years, I mean, you you're you're in fact going after La Pizza Week to Pizza Summit West in Vancouver to talk about using beer in pizza dough and to demonstrate it. That's correct. Yes. So in 2005, I entered a recipe contest put on by Canadian Pizza Magazine. It was for a uh, Pizza Chef of the Year 2005. And uh, the grand prize was a trip to Las Vegas to compete against uh, the winner of the same competition on the U.S. side. So I was inspired to put a Canadian beer in the dough, and uh, it, was a, it was a hit. It was a success. And uh, here we are 17, 18 years later, and uh, I've been writing for the magazine since shortly after that time. And uh, now I'm uh, doing a, a demonstration in Vancouver at the Pizza Summit um, uh, West uh, about using beers and pizza dough and um, all the wonderful things and flavors that it can bring out in just a simple dough. Talk, talk about that. Why, why beer in pizza dough? Because it does change the taste. Why, what's the benefit? So there are many benefits. I, um, uh, the, the, the different types of beer will impart a different taste. So for instance, the Moosehead beer, it gives a nice uh, crisp uh, out exterior, nice crisp crust, and then a soft, uh, chewy dough inside, chewy bread-like. We use uh, only Italian olive oil in our all of our dough recipes, so you get a nice, authentic Italian bread flavor. But if you were to use a lighter beer, the, the dough would be uh, a little crisper, a little lighter, and of course, you can stretch out your, your dough thinner or thicker, depending on what you like. And um, I, I ended up uh, taking an um, Italian pizza certification course in um, 2008, and I learned there that uh, in Italy they'd been using beer and wine in, in bread doughs and pizza doughs for centuries because in many areas the water was not potable and was, was contaminated. And so they needed something that had been gone through a filtration process, and so beer and wine has already been through that. And uh, uh, it was just the perfect uh, liquid to uh, enhance the flavors of, of a bread and pizza dough. Interesting. Now, I don't think I've ever tried pizza dough with wine in it. And is it white or red or both? Typically, it's white wine. I have a friend in um, in California, and he uses his, his grandmother's uh, recipe. And, uh, yeah, there was wine in the dough. Not, not a lot, so we're talking in a... Um, and a 50-pound batch of dough, there's like a bottle of, of uh, a white wine. And uh, again, the, the, well, the science behind it is that when the yeast is activated, it eats the proteins in the flour and develops the flavors from the wine. Or if it's using a beer and this is through the fermentation, it, it, it develops its flavors and um, uh, gives it a unique taste and bake. You're not just a pizza joint. You really are a pizza chef and an art an artisan. 
Um, and I'm curious to know, you know, you were one of the first people that I heard of using beer, uh, as we've talked about, but what else have you tried in pizza dough and what are you working on? Don't give away any secrets, but I'm curious to know if you're looking for other ways to maybe improve upon that pizza dough. Well, this, the, I always like to play around with ingredients. I like to say I'm a naturally talented, uh, um, chef, a uh, cook. And so I always like to play around with different ingredients in the kitchen and, uh, uh, so I have played around with different beers in pizza doughs to see what kind of um, different um, crusts it'll create and what it pairs well with. Uh, lately, I'm really interested in a pinza. It's a different style of, of pizza. It's uh, uh, very unique. It's not in Winnipeg yet, to my knowledge. Um, but uh, again, it's very similar to pizza, but not quite. Hmm. How do you spell that? I want to look it up later. Sure, it's P-I-N-S-A. Pinsa. Hmm, interesting. Pinsa. Um, and I just want to get your thoughts before we, again, I want to talk about your pizza for La Pizza Week. Um, but pizzas have come so far, Diana. You know, there was a time not that long ago when you'd get pepperoni, mushroom, you know, and a bit of cheese. or like. But they have just become creations, haven't they? Oh, they sure have, yes. And I sure like to uh, color outside the lines, as, as I like to say. So uh, I'd, I'd like to see what else goes on pizza, what kind of inspirations are, um, can, can create a really delicious pizza. So I often look to international flavors or different dishes that I've tried in um, uh, other restaurants and so wonder, like, well, what would that taste like on a pizza? And uh, uh, I'm also going to be demonstrating demonstrating international flavors in Vancouver at the Pizza Summit. So uh, I'm going to be bringing our uh, sweet and spicy divine swine. And so this one is uh, a Polynesian-inspired pizza, even though uh, most people do know, but some don't, that uh, pineapple was put on by a Canadian, was, was a created, a Hawaiian pizza was created by a Canadian, first and foremost. But uh, so here this pizza is uh, our dry-cured pepperoni um, pineapple and uh, uh, barbecue pulled pork with a splash of hot sauce that's got a little kick to it. And uh, I pair that with some uh, mozzarella and medium sharp cheddar. And so, um, it's, it's a great pizza. And I've even had people who've been hardcore uh, pineapple does, does not belong on pizza people. And they've uh, capitulated and said, you know what, it's actually really good. It's a good mm. pizza. Care to weigh in on that debate? Like, you know, a lot of people have a real problem with pineapple on pizza. I, I say, whatever you enjoy on your pizza, you should put it on your pizza. Oh, I agree. Thank you for saying that. I, I wholeheartedly agree. As long as um, I'm not trying to force you to eat something that you don't want to eat and then vice versa, I don't see what the big deal is. So, um, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. And let's talk about La Pizza Week. It wraps up on Sunday. It's actually been on for two weeks now, wraps up on Sunday. Tell us about your entry, uh, and then we encourage people this weekend maybe to, uh, you know, order a pizza or two and and support local pizza joints. Uh, I appreciate that. Yes, so my entry this year, uh, I call it the Farm Boy, and uh, it's uh, uh, our house-made marinara, chicken fingers, strip bacon, caramelized onions, and extra cheese blend of mozzarella and our garlic and chive Havarti. And then we top it with uh, crispy fried onions after it's baked. And, of course, it's paired with a moosehead beer crust. So 
it's a phenomenal pizza. It's definitely staying on the menu after Love Pizza Week. But uh, I really hope that a lot of people can come out and enjoy it this weekend and, and also vote for it because that would be fabulous. Yes. Uh, Diana, my mouth is watering. Thank you for that. I, I won't have pizza for lunch today, but I'm hungry and I got 45 minutes left in my show. All uh, the best to you, continued success, and best of luck at Pizza Summit West. Thank you so much, Hal. You have a wonderful day. Bernier says he wants to give his right-wing party more visibility and participate in a federal leader's debate during the next federal election campaign. And joining us on the phone now to talk about it, Shannon Samper, political scientist and columnist. Shannon, good morning. Good morning, Hal. How are you doing? I'm great. I should explain, you haven't been on my show for a while, and I was sending you the odd email and I wasn't hearing back, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what have I done? Uh, And then we (laughs) ran into each other in the neighborhood drugstore, and you went, how? And I went, Shannon, and so I got your new email, and so I'm glad to have you on the show again. Thanks for having me back. Yes, I thought we, I thought I'd done something, a full saw, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> yeah, me too. So there you go. Um, what do you make of this? Everybody's tough politically. Everybody's talking about Max Bernier running in Portage Liscar. We should say that um, the uh, Tories nominated Brandon Leslie, uh, mm-hmm. who beat out Cameron Friesen. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now it looks like Brandon Leslie for the Tories will be taking on Max Bernier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the thing is that that it makes sense that Max would be running in uh, Portage Lisker. It was where he did his best in the last federal election. Absolutely. Um, because that seems to be uh, the Portage Lisker area seems to be an area where uh, there are very anti-vaccines, anti-gun legislation, etc. But you have to remember that that showing for uh, the PPC and for Bernier came at a time when they had a different uh, leader, and it was Aaron O'Toole, who uh, was criticized by very uh, a lot of members of the conservatives for being sort of, uh, uh, sort of waning on certain uh, political issues that the conservatives felt that he should have been a little bit more solid on. Now that they have a new political leader in Pierre Poliev, I think uh, Bernier will have some difficulty uh, finding the same kind of political results that he got in the last federal election. Poliev has come out in saying that he is against vaccine mandates. He's against, uh, he's against gun legislation. And indeed, Brandon Leslie has said he has fought tooth and nail, both with Harper and will continue to do so uh, with the current government on the legislation, gun legislation that's coming up. So um, I think fully, uh, I think the uh, PPC and uh, uh, Mad Max will have a difficult time making as many inroads as he did in the last election this time around, because uh, he's very much the same as what the conservatives are now running on. Yeah, that's a very good point, right? Pierre Polyev is a much different leader, and so, uh, but, but it does make sense that Max would run in, in Portage Liscar. And then Brandon Leslie has has real uh, deep connections uh, to Candace Bergen as well, which won't hurt, right? That's right, and he well, he was his campaign he was campaign manager, but he also has some deep connection too with Stephen uh, Stephen Harper and. His campaign. He's worked in the Hill. He knows the riding very, very well. He now is uh, is uh, has worked as well as the sort of the voice of the grain growers. So he knows that riding inside and out. Not like uh, Bernier will, because Bernier's coming in as an outsider. Uh, this guy is a farm kid.
Rose grew up in that area. So uh, it'll be difficult for Bernier to make those kinds of inroads. And as I say, with Pouliev already making the same kind of guarantees or making the same kind of uh, policy uh, ideas that Bernier is making, it's sort of the two tomatoes. Who do I trust? Well, I'm going to trust the farm kid that, you know, I I know his parents. I know him. I'm going to trust the farm kid. Shannon, I'm almost out of time, so thanks for this. We, as you know, as you know, lots of politics. So now that we've reconnected, we'll have you back soon because we've got a political, uh, we've got an election coming up here in the province, and then I want to ask you about what's happening at City Hall. So we'll talk more next time. But I wanted to get you in on on Max Bernier. Thanks for this. Thanks, Hal. Talk soon. All right, Shannon Sampert, political scientist and columnist. So there you go. It certainly, if Max Bernier does, and he's expected to announce tomorrow that he is uh, running in Portage Liscar, it will certainly make that one of the races to watch in all of Canada in the next federal election. right after the 1130 news and so that means we're going to talk to carolyn classen from connexus counseling carolyn good morning good morning how how are you i am excellent thank you for uh for doing this again we've got lots to get to here including uh some talk about moms and mother's day but i want to start with loneliness uh, a surge in loneliness here as uh, global news reporter Catherine ward explains dr jacques lee has been researching what loneliness does to our health His team screened 4,000 people at Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital Emergency Department. Two in five met the clinical definition of lonely, and 14% were moderately to severely lonely. Loneliness is as bad for you as smoking and may contribute to an excess 45,000 deaths a year in Canada. When you're on your own, the things we tend to do are not so healthy. Smoke, eat poorly, sleep poorly, and not go outside, not exercise. Lee says age can be a contributing factor. Being older and perhaps not as technologically astute in a more technological society may leave you shut out. So, Carolyn, when I first heard this story, I remember uh, 1989, 1990, when I first came to Winnipeg, and I had heart-aching loneliness. I missed my Mm. family. I missed my friends. I was excited about opportunities that my career, you know, those opportunities that brought me to Winnipeg, but I was lonely, and I can't imagine having those feelings of loneliness all the time. So it doesn't surprise me that the impact of loneliness can be even more deadly, more dangerous than smoking, say, for example. Yes, people that are socially socially isolated have a 50% increased likelihood of early death. It matters to one's life whether you are lonely or not. And um, loneliness is hard on our bodies because our brains are wired for connection. We were meant to live in communities, but it also has, like as the researcher said, when you are lonely, you're more likely to engage in habits that lonely people engage in, like smoking and not exercising and sitting there and eating by yourself while you're watching a screen, which leads to further um, health implications. And so I think it's really important for us to recognize loneliness. And um, what you describe is, you know, as a radio host, you came to Winnipeg and you were lonely, even though you would have people all around you because they weren't part of a meaningful community at that point. And it took some time for you to develop those relationships where you were sharing your life with people that meant something to you that takes some time and it takes investment. And that is a hard thing to do. Well, and I would argue that now, you know, 30 years later, with social media and all the ways that we connect not face-to-face, 
loneliness. No wonder we're seeing a surge in loneliness. We are. We're very much seeing a surge of loneliness. And what happens when people are lonely, um, John Cassiopo, who's kind of the loneliness expert, he died a few years back. He did some research where he put lonely people into brain scanning machines, and he noticed that they noticed potential threats uh, twice as fast as non-lonely people. And so what he is recognizing is that protracted loneliness causes us to shut down socially and to be more suspicious of any social contact. And so you start when you're lonely, you start to more easily take offense when none was attended and to be afraid of strangers. And so there's this snowball effect that happens where your disconnection spirals into more disconnection. And um, it's, it's hard once a person is in that downhill spiral of loneliness to get out of it because they actually need more love and more encouragement and more reassurance to get out of that loneliness because of that hypervigilance and suspiciousness that happens when you're lonely. Okay, so let's give people some news they can use here then. So you're feeling lonely, uh, and we understand why that is, especially in, in 2023 with, you know, everything that's going on, social media and even divisions in politics, as we were talking politics earlier on. Uh, I mean, there's so many things that are impacting loneliness. What can somebody who's feeling lonely do? I think when people are feeling lonely, um, first of all, it's interesting that you're asking me, what can the lonely person do, which always puts the responsibility on the lonely person. And I think we as a society need to recognize that we are a culture that there are unhealthy individuals embedded in it because um, we are living in a culture where people are not getting the connections that they need in order to be healthy human beings. And so we often start with what can the lonely person do? And I think it's helpful for the rest of us to say, where are the lonely people and can we provide a little extra encouragement and opportunity for them to become a part of us? For the lonely person who's listening at home right now, the key is to not only be with people, but to be with them in a way that where you're sharing something with them, where there's an exchange. And so volunteering is a very good way to share together when you're working together at Winnipeg Harvest, packing boxes, for example, um, or when you're at the Humane Society and you're walking dogs together. That if as you're sharing something with other people, then you develop a shared sense of meaning, and that is what helps you feel less lonely. It's not just people but it's the sharing together. And that's really important when you're lonely is to find places where you can share something with somebody else. And I think you're right. It's not necessarily up to the person who's lonely. It's up to us. When we see somebody we suspect is lonely and involving them in what we're doing. It is. And that's, that, that makes a, a deliberate effort on all of us to recognize we are a people that do best in community. And where is there somebody close by that lacks community and that is looking for it and I can offer it and I can include them. And when you ask the first time and they say no, that doesn't mean that they're not lonely or that they didn't want to. It means that they're scared and they're in that snowball of loneliness. And so it may take extra encouragement and support and two or three asks before they're willing to come. Yeah. Loneliness. I think, I think we're going to continue to see this be, uh, be a problem that, that I think gets worse before it gets better. I hope I'm wrong, but that's the sense I get. Let's talk about Mom. Mother's Day coming up, of course, um, and I'll just share some numbers here from a new survey to get us into the conversation. 73% of moms feel they're the best in the world. 8 in 10 say they believe they're the driving force of their family and the family would be lost without them. Moms, superhero traits. <laughs> And mom, moms are superheroes, as far as I'm concerned, in, in, in all of the above. But here's what the survey found. 
Uh, 52% are confident in their problem-solving. 50% say nurturing is their superpower. Multitasking, 41%. Organization, time management, 36%. Communication, 34%. Um, so moms are superheroes, no doubt about it. It's a special day for mom. Whatever you do, I think just recognize that mom's a really important person in your life. Oh man. Um, yes, mothers are important and it's often, it's a job with long hours and it often feels fairly thankless. And so I'm glad that there is a day when people are called to be mindful and to fuss a little over not only their moms, but the people who played a maternal role in your life uh, and to celebrate them and to let them know that you really see them and that they really matter. And, uh, uh, you know, I've never done anything so important in my life as to be a mother. Um, it's a responsibility I've taken more seriously than any other, and it's also one that I've struggled and agonized more over than any other because it's something I want so hard to do a good job at and judge myself so harshly on, uh, as many mothers do. And so when somebody says we see you and we're grateful and it really matters, man, that really pumps our tires. Mm, so challenging, right, but so rewarding. Mm-hmm. Yes, mothering is so hard. Um, but, uh, you know, my grandson will spend the day with me tomorrow and, you know, his little arms, chubby arms reach towards me and it just, all that effort just makes it all worth it when you see that. Mm -hmm. Um, Opposites, do opposites attract? Okay, so this has been debated for a long time. Um, I'll just use my experience, my marriage, my wife Jackie and I are very different in many ways, but we are similar also in many ways. Here's what the survey found. The survey of uh, 13 people, uh, 1,300 couples, and this is out of Michigan State University, so a reputable school did this. They looked at the five big personality traits, okay? So partners, and, and here's what the study found. Partners who were more extroverted, agreeable, conscientious, open-minded, and less negatively emotional reported the most relationship satisfaction. But the bottom line here is, you don't have to be opposites or have clashing personalities to be attracted to each other. A successful couple doesn't necessarily have to be two opposites. It can work either way. Absolutely. Your show is called Connecting Winnipeg. I have a company called Wired for Connection. Uh, that applies to relationships in all forms, and uh, certainly with couples, it's the connection that matters. And so sometimes people, uh, you know, solidify their connection over common interests. Sometimes those opposite qualities can challenge each other and help each other grow, and they actually connect through that challenge. I think the, the, the idea of finding ways of connecting with each other, remaining connected, and then when there's the inevitable ruptures that happen to that connection, finding a consistent, solid way of repairing that connection, that is going to re- predict whether that attraction is going to remain. And so sometimes it's about interests and opposites and similarities, and but mostly when it comes down to it, the bottom line is, is it's about connection. This, can this person see me during a hard time? Can they work come back to me when we've had a difficult moment and can we figure it out together because they and I both know we're on the same team at the end of the day. Are you seeing more couples coming for therapy, Carolyn, now than say pre-pandemic or any sense at all with your practice? Well, I think what I'm seeing now is that uh, we've always worked with a lot of couples, but what I'm delighted to see now is that 
people used to come when it was almost too late. Um, sometimes they had already called a lawyer before they called us, and that's a really hard time to work with a couple to help them find their connection. And now sometimes couples are, the stigma of some of that couple counseling is going away. And so people can say, we're not coming because we're in desperate straits. We're coming because we want a good marriage even better. And we notice there's some cracks, and we just want to look at those and find ways to repair them. And I love when people come in really early because it just gives us such a chance to make a small course correction in a way that prevents bigger problems later on and that's I think what we're seeing more of which I absolutely love boy in so many so many ways in life right proactive is better than reactive so that's uh, interesting to hear that from you it's also today final uh, topic here for Carolyn Klassen from Connexus Counseling it's today Children's Mental Health Awareness Day and I think you know mental health is finally getting I, I still don't think it's getting enough of the attention that it deserves, but it's getting more. And I think children's mental health is getting more attention. I wanted to make sure we talked about this today. Um, and I've got a couple of follow-up questions, but I'll just get your thoughts on children and their mental health. Yeah, um, I, I'm glad that there's a focus on it, that we're talking about it, that we recognize that mental health for children is not something to just easily say, oh, they'll grow out of it, it doesn't matter dismisses our opportunity to say, I see you struggling, let me help you in that struggle so that we can work to resolve it together because you can do hard things and I'll help you do hard things. Um, We recognize that often kids, when they're anxious or depressed, one of the ways they self-medicate is with screens, which kind of numbs the problem but doesn't actually deal with it. And so that leads them into um, this reliance on social media or computer games um, in order to be able to uh, numb that depression or that anxiety rather than saying, I'm struggling, let's figure it out, let's talk about it, and let's find a way in real life to address that in ways that have you be awake and alive in your life and developing those meaningful connections that are just so important to our well-being. You know, I, listen, I don't have kids, but I know parents will say to their kids, Billy, how are you doing? Fine. I'm okay. Um, <laughs> you know, right? And and parents leave it at that. I found it interesting, uh, this uh, survey that I was just looking at, half of parents think their kids' mental health is suffering because of social media in this particular case. And one stat that kind of jumped out at me, only 86% of parents, now that's down from 91% from a year ago, but only 86% of parents say they feel comfortable discussing mental health with their children. That's got to change. It does. And I think getting more comfortable with talking about mental health with children starts with just getting more comfortable talking to your kids about everything. And so there's two things that I advocate for parents to do. And one is to have family supper, where sometimes it's about, can you please pass the peas? And other times it's like, well, this thing happened at work today. And then the kid says, yeah, that happened to me at school sometimes. And you just start talking about life and exchanging stories and understanding each other better and learning from each other. So family supper is one. And the other is, you know, get your kids involved in activities. And if they're involved across town, that's great. Because sometimes the best conversations happen when you're both in the car no screens, no earbuds, but you're just talking maybe with some music in the background and you're not looking at each other and you have a half hour that you have to kill and you just end up talking with each other about things that you might not otherwise. And those were some of the best times that I had to talk with my sons when they were teenagers was in the car driving across town. It just happens. And that's when mental health comes up after you've already built a base of trust as you're talking about this and that and the next thing. Carolyn Klassen, thanks a lot. Good stuff today. Do take care.
All right, Carolyn Klassen, carolynklassen.com or connexuscounseling.ca.